you have a child who's kindergartner down, we forgot to verbally dismiss them to their class. Uh, so if they still need to go, you're welcome to uh, take them uh, to their class if you'd like. But if you're staying in here or if you're listening in online, I want you to turn in your Bible to uh, the book of Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. Next week, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. So these are some very familiar texts as we come closer to Christmas time. Uh, but this week was a fairly trying week uh, for me, uh, somewhat pastorally, but a lot of things personally, just with our families, things going on. And I, I don't know about you, what you do when you have hard weeks like that. Hopefully we lean into reading the scriptures and praying and being with God's people, uh, speaking with them, and I definitely have sought to do that. But sometimes we try to escape a little bit, maybe watch something, read something kind of light to set our minds on something else. And one of the things I did this week was I, I watched a few old Christmas movies, like ones that I haven't watched in a while. One, uh, it rightfully so, never really makes top 10 Christmas movie lists or anything like that, uh, is a movie from way back in my childhood in 1996. Uh, for some of you, you were already adults by then. Some of you were not even a thought yet in 1996. But there's a movie that came out called Jingle All the Way. Have any of you seen this? Okay, so a few. Okay, so some of you have no idea. Most of you have no idea about this then. Maybe you should watch it. It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, if that tells you anything. Uh, far from his Terminator days, he is playing kind of out of his normal character, a dad uh, who is a businessman, and he uh, is very engrossed in his business, running his business, trying to make money, trying to make profit, to the point where he, he has a son, he has a wife, and he's neglecting both both of them. Um, that becomes very clear as the movie goes along. Uh, pretty early on in the movie, there is a scene where uh, there's been that, it's set at Christmas time, obviously, because it's a Christmas movie, but supposedly there is this toy that's a hot commodity at that time. It's, uh, it's supposed to be an action figure called Turbo Man. Very corny, but uh, his son really wants this, and you find out through this scene that his wife um, because she knew it was going to be a hot commodity, had asked him, the dad and the husband, uh, to get that present early on, uh, to get it before it was off the shelves, to get it before it was gone. And this scene comes where she asks him, assuming he's already gotten it, and you see all of a sudden he remembers like, oh yeah, I promised that I was going to get that toy. I have not done so. And then the rest of the movie that flows from there is him trying to come good on his promise that he had made to his wife and that he had kind of implied to his son uh, he would have this turbo man action figure uh, when Christmas morning comes along. But there's this scene, and why I'm even mentioning it now, uh, there's this scene where his son, who is a young boy, probably elementary school, has just been repeatedly frustrated with his dad, disappointed with his dad. He's old enough to realize, man, he is not following through on anything that he says he's going to do, or being the places where he says he's going to be. And there's this scene where he says to his dad, he says, what would you know about keeping your promises? You never keep your promises. You never do anything you say you're going to do, ever. And it's like the, it starts to sink into his uh, dad mind, his fatherly mind, that, that his son is correct. And uh, we, I mentioned that, and it leads into today's text, because I think we all know that experience, right? Of We have this glorious part of our existence as human beings that other creatures don't, where we can make promises, like we can pledge ourselves to future things and people can, uh, can hear us say those things, but we also have the pain of breaking promises. 
It's not just that we can make them, but we can break them as well. And we, we see this at Advent time in particular, uh, this question that arises in the hearts of God's people, like we're going to read about in a moment, and even raises in our hearts as well. Uh, when we think about the promises that God has made to us, the things he has pledged to do, the things that he has pledged to bring about, the question naturally, I think, rightfully arises in our mind, can we trust those? Can we trust him to come good on those things? Because in our human experience, we often can't uh, trust each other. But this is the perfect time of year. Christmas is the perfect time of year. Advent is the perfect time of year to think about those questions. Can we trust the promises of God? And if so, why? Like, why can we trust them? And this year, I think 2020 more than any other, I think those questions resonate in our hearts. Can we trust the promises of God? And if so, why? We're going to start in just a minute in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 39. But we are entering in right into the middle of a huge story. So I want to take just a minute to catch us up to speed, uh, whether you're familiar with the Bible in depth or whether it's uh, uh, vaguely familiar to you. I want you to kind of know where we're jumping into the story so you know what is going on here and why promises are important, why whether we can believe promises is important as we think about the birth of Jesus. Uh, so where we're going to start is right as Jesus is about, or probably already conceived in the womb of Mary. But if you rewind in time, go back in time in the record of the scriptures, I wanted to note for you a few of the promises, the massive, glorious promises that God had made over time. So if you read through the scriptures, you see that in about, I'll give some rough dates here, about 2100 B.C., uh, God uh, gave a promise to a man named Abraham that one day one of his descendants, one of his offspring, was going to somehow become a blessing to all the nations of the world. So 2100 God, BC, God gives that promise to Abraham. One of your descendants is going to bless all the nations of the earth. Keep going in time, several hundred years. You get to about the 1400s BC, 1450 BC or so. Uh, Moses has arisen to the scene. And he, he's led God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. And God tells him uh, that someday he's going to send a prophet. Someday he's going to send the spokesman who's arisen onto this scene. And God to David gives him a promise that one of his descendants, so it's narrowing who this is going to be, one of his descendants is someday going to be a king as well. But his kingdom, whoever that descendant's going to be someday, he says to David, You're that descendant someday, his throne will last forever. His kingdom will last forever. Then the last one I'm going to mention, you go a few more hundred years uh, closer in time to us, to about 750 B.C., uh, God spoke, he was speaking to a variety of prophets at the time, but spoke to a prophet named Isaiah. And through Isaiah, God made an even more specific promise. He said that someday, in the future from then, he was going to send this servant, and a servant who would suffer for the sins of God's people who would take the sins of God's people onto himself and be punished in their place so they may be forgiven. So God had made these huge promises starting even before Abraham, but that's where we started. 2100 BC keeps making these huge promises of this rescuer, this savior, a Messiah who's going to come and, and gives a little bit of detail of what he's going to be like, what he's going to do. But then before what we're about to read this morning, and many of you know this, but I want this to sink into you, there was hundreds of years of silence from God. 
plural hundreds, at least about 400 years of silence where God seemingly stopped giving promises, stopped giving more revelation. He's just kind of letting those promises that he had already given just sit there. And he's spoken them. And we, if we have somebody who made a promise to us yesterday and they haven't come through on it, we often assume that they forgot, right? If it's that, hey, I'm going to do such. I do that all the time at my house. I tell my wife, hey, I'll do such and such. That's some chore around the house. I say I'll do a favor, something like that. And then rightfully so, if I've not done it by the next day, she assumes I forgot. And she's usually right. Uh, that I, I forgot to do it, so she needs to remind me. In human experience, imagine 400 years of silence. Like God's people, they knew the promises, as we'll see. But they, they naturally, I think, started to wonder and question their hearts. Has God forgotten these promises? Is he going to come through on these things? And you see even at the start of the book of Luke, which is going to record the life of Jesus. If you actually just glance your eyes back quickly, if you can, back to verse 5. As Luke is starting his narrative of the life of Jesus and, and when he comes into the earth. Do you notice how Luke kind of starts his narrative in verse 5? He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So even as Jesus is about to enter into the world, there's still no king of God's people there in the promised land. They're ruled by a foreign king. It, God has made all these huge promises, but he has yet to show how they're going to be fulfilled. They're being ruled by other people. But then in Luke chapter 1, God just starts this flurry of activity. After hundreds of years, centuries upon centuries of silence and inactivity, God starts spinning the wheel of action. Okay, and he starts, we don't have time to read through it, but he starts um, by sending the angel Gabriel to this man named Zechariah, who's serving as a priest in Jerusalem. And he gives him a promise that him and his wife Elizabeth are going to conceive a son. They, they are older in age, they've had an inability to conceive a child, but this angel Gabriel tells him, you're going to conceive, or your wife's going to conceive a son. And that ultimately becomes John the Baptist, as we find out. So it's this supernatural intervention of God, uh, this activity starting back up of God speaking through this angel. And then right before what we're about to read this morning, this, that same angel, Gabriel, had gone to visit a teenage girl named Mary. And he promised her a son as well. Her son, if you read through that text, was going to far surpass Zechariah and Elizabeth's son far as any son who, or daughter for that matter who had ever been born throughout time or ever would be born. He tells her that, that this son, her son, is going to be, uh, he, he pledges her a conception of this son and then even what I would call like a coronation of this son. It's not just, hey, I'm going to give you a baby boy. It's going to be wonderful. But he says that he is going to uh, occupy the throne of his father David. In verse 33, that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So that angel is telling Mary, your son that's about to be conceived is going to be that one that has been promised long ago. That God told you about long ago, that is going to be your son. And she seems to believe that easily. Like that he's going to be king, that he's going to rule forever. What she struggles with is the conception part, which I'm not going to get into birds and bees lessons here. Uh, but she's a virgin, unmarried. She's wondering, how can that be? So she asks the angel, and he says that this baby's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
And she ends right before we're about to read today, so we're caught up to speed. Verse 38 of Luke chapter 1. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So she believes what God said. So we're going to pick up. We're going to read this next paragraph, verse 39 through 45. And I'm going to hit pause and share some of what's going on so we understand uh, this scene that's going to take place. And then I'm, we're going to read 46 down through 56, which is this prayer of Mary that we call the Magnificat. And so uh, let's pick up the story, verse 39 through 45. I'm going to read this. I'd encourage you to follow along. This is a very familiar text to most of us, but I want us to really listen, see what God says, see what Luke recorded for us about uh, what was leading up to the birth of our Savior Jesus. So verse 39, Luke wrote this. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So what happens here? In verse 39, most of this is just Elizabeth speaking when Mary arrives at her house, right? But verse 39 says that pretty soon, we don't know exactly, but pretty soon after Gabriel had visited her, it says that she went with haste into the hill country uh, to visit her town. She saw her. Maybe she was shouting from down the road or something. Uh, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, who we know to be John the Baptist ultimately, he leaps I don't know what that feels like. Some of you ladies who have been pregnant, you could probably explain that better than me. Um, but this baby leaps in her womb. And then verse 41 says, note this, it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then she exclaims with a loud cry. And then the rest is her talking. So she's filled with the Spirit and she speaks. And it seems like the Spirit gives her somehow, I don't know exactly how this works, somehow gave her supernatural insight into what was going on, right? Somehow she knows what is happening. And I think it's a lot more than just a woman's intuition, right? Because think about this, there would have been no, Mary didn't have a cell phone to pull out and say, hey, Elizabeth, I'm coming to visit you. You'll never believe what happened and like tell her in advance probably she's just rolling in there and somehow Elizabeth knows a lot about what's going on. Somehow she's been given insight. Think about what is revealed that she knew from the moment Elizabeth or, or that Mary arrives. First, she knows that she's pregnant. Did you notice that? She talks about like uh, blessed in the verse 42, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Remember who she's talking to. This would have been like her little teenage relative who's not married yet, who just comes and visits and first thing out of the gate is, blessed is the fruit of your womb. I don't think she was just spitballing and guessing. Somehow she knew, okay? We, we know, especially men know not to joke about whether a lady is pregnant or not. And somehow she knew she was pregnant. 
But I would also note somehow she knew that this pregnancy was not one in any way of dishonor or disobedience to God. But that however this baby had been conceived that it was one of blessing of God. Right? Because she knew she wasn't married. She knew uh, that she was a virgin. But she speaks of this baby as a blessed, as this pregnancy, as a blessed one. Implying that God has been involved somehow in bringing this baby's existence to be. And then the most crazy thing of all, not only does she know that this baby exists, and this baby uh, was conceived and, uh, as one of blessing, not of dishonor, but she knows, she in verse 43, calls this baby her Lord. Did you notice that? I don't know about you, but like when I, I like to visit people when they've just had a baby recently, and I don't say like, oh, look at my little Lord. Like, you don't say, like, that's nonsense. That, that makes no sense at all. But somehow she knew, Elizabeth knows by the Spirit, she says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She knew that there was something unique, profoundly different about this child, that he was already and ultimately would become her Lord. Not just her nephew or great-nephew or whatever, but her Lord. And I want you to notice the titles then. There's two ways that Elizabeth refers to Mary, and I think both of these are instructive to her, and to us, I should say. One of the titles is unique to Mary, and I already just alluded to it. It's that she calls him the mother of my Lord, verse 43. That's a title that no other person could have or ever will have other than Mary herself, that, that she, physically speaking, is the mother of the Lord Jesus. But the next phrase, and this is going to be important for our purposes about believing the promises of God, the other title that she gives to Mary and refers to her with is in verse 45. It's kind of a long title, numerous words in that. But she calls Mary, she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That's a long title. It's a lot longer than Mary. Uh, she, she calls her, she who believed there'd be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That's how she refers to this young relative of hers. She knew that Mary believed the promises of God. That Mary believed, even if it felt unbelievable, she believed what God had said to her. We're going to see in this next prayer that she says why that is. But I want to note one thing, kind of as an aside, before we move on to this prayer of Mary. I don't want us to, to rush by what was happening even between these two women. Okay? Uh, that to remember that these are human beings, flesh and blood uh, women of God that I would say that even Elizabeth is ministering to Mary and we might not even totally realize it. Okay? I want you to imagine being Mary and rolling into that house. Seriously, like try to imagine being her. Maybe if she had told anybody yet about being pregnant, they had just scratched their head or just laughed at her or told her to uh, just quit joking around, those types of things. She's rolling in with this huge message, maybe a burden, I don't know, maybe wanting to hide it, maybe wanting to uh, keep it quiet. And then the first thing as she enters into this house, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. And I think what she says to, her, to Mary would have been such an encouragement 
such a confirmation, such a blessing to her to know, like, I'm not crazy. Like, Gabriel really did come and talk to me. Like, there really is a baby in my womb somehow. Like, the, the Spirit showed Elizabeth things to speak to Mary, I think, as an encouragement and a confirmation for her. And I don't want us to rush past that because the Spirit still does that. That's part of what he does amongst the people of God is he doesn't always give us just like supernatural insight into like words of knowledge and things like that into people's lives. I think he can. I think he does. I pray for that. I've heard of it happen. I've seen small glimpses of it where he gives insight into people's lives that then others can speak to them as an encouragement like God sees you. God knows what, what is happening in your life. But he fills Elizabeth, by the Spirit, to speak these words of encouragement to Mary. Confirmation. I just want us to to not rush past that as Christians and as a church, but to note that and pray that God would use us that way. That, That we'd be sensitive to the things that the Spirit may want to use us, the ways he may want to fill us to speak... Uh, to speak words of confirmation and the, the affirmation of God's favor in our lives. That when you see the Spirit fill people in Luke and especially in the book of Acts, it's to speak. It's to speak on God's behalf to build up the faith of people, uh, to, to point them to the truth about Jesus. And uh, I, I pray regularly that the Spirit would fill us, that he would fill me to speak, fill me to speak in such ways to other Christians, to speak words of encouragement to them. So this title, though, that she uses for Mary, that she who believed there'd be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I think we're given a glimpse in this prayer, then, that Mary prays as to why Mary could do that, why she believed the promises of God, uh, the ones that have been given long ago and then the ones specifically given to her now, uh, the reasons why she could believe. And so I want to read this prayer for you, verses 46 to 56, uh, and I want us to, to dig in into what she's praying, to see what it can show us about her trust in God and his promises, and why that can be then relayed to us, why it should impact us and our ability to trust God's promises. So follow along with me, uh, this prayer of Mary, verses 46 down through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. 
I wonder what those three months were like. Uh, I would have loved to be around and hear some of those conversations. Uh, but she stayed with her three months. We don't know what all was said then, but we do know that this prayer was uttered by Mary, probably early on, maybe even in that moment uh, as she's there and greeted by Elizabeth. But we know that these, these words were the prayer of Mary prayer of Mary to her God, to our God. I want to recap some of what she's praying here. Uh, this is a prayer that historically has been called, and your, some of your Bibles may even have this heading, that people call the Magnificat. That's just like a Latin word. I don't know Latin, but I know it's a translation of the word there right at the start, verse 46, that most of your Bibles either say, my soul magnifies the Lord, or my soul exalts the Lord. Magnificat is just a fancy Latin way of saying exalt or magnify. It's this prayer where she's trying to magnify God, show how great he is, tell him how great he is. She's not, I I appreciate in this prayer that, that Mary is not just asking God for things. She's telling God things about himself. She's reminding God as if God could forget, but saying the things that are true and great about God. So many times our prayers, so many times my prayers are just asking and asking and asking and asking and asking. And that's not wrong. It is good for us. We're called to do that in the Bible, to implore God, to to beg him for things, to intercede for people. But we ought to have a significant part of our prayers as being just telling God how wonderful he is. Telling him thank you for the things that he's already done. You see Mary doing that. Rejoicing in what God has already done. She celebrates, I would say, she celebrates first and uh, throughout a big chunk of this prayer until the last couple verses, she's celebrating what God has actually done. We're going to see at the end of the prayer that she's celebrating and remembering what God has said, the things God has promised. But a lot of the prayer is her celebrating what God has actually done, his actions. Kind of like we talked about last week, if you were here. She's looking back in time in her own life and then in the life of God's people. And she's thanking him and praising him, magnifying him for the things that he has already done. The, the first couple verses, like 46 through 49, you'll notice that she's talking about the things that God has done for me. It, it's very personal, right? Like she talks about uh, in verse 48, how uh, all generations will call me blessed. In verse 49, that he who is mighty has done great things for me. Like she's remembering first, man, God has done this amazing thing. I, I am just a young lady living probably in the middle of nowhere, like not known by people. And God is for some reason using me to become the mother of this one that he has promised from a old. And she, her mind is probably blown by this, but she is thankful that God would use her, this humble young lady, to be part of his plan. She's uh, thankful, and I think her, her heart would have just rejoiced to know the blessing and the favor of God upon her life, that, that he would use even her. But then she quickly, I think, starts to move on in verses 50 to 53, and really even down to the end of pr- the prayer in some ways. She starts to move beyond just what God has done in her own life, which, side note, we're going to talk more about that next Sunday of the importance of hindsight and remembering what God has done in our own lives personally. Uh, But she moves uh, beyond just what he's done for her personally to what God has done for his people more broadly. 
the things he's done for Israel at this point in time, the things he had done for the people of God even long before her. And she, she sang it poetically, she sang it prayerfully, but what you notice, there's some threads that she runs through those verses where she's talking about the, just the uh, vastly different ways that God works and deals with us as human beings than we deal with each other. It, she talks about how he treats, even in his strength, even in his power, like he gives attention to those who are humble, those who are small. And to those who are prideful, those who are arrogant, those who are even strong in the world's eyes and who we may be tempted as human beings to, to really exalt and respect and think, man, they must have it together. They are like the pinnacle of humanity. He's built their own kingdoms. He tears them down. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And she knew as she looked back upon the history of God's people that God had done that. God had shown that to be true in the nation of Israel, Right? Israel was not just this like powerhouse in the region, like all this nobility and, and strength and might that just could overpower people and could just take over. They were a small nation with small beginnings. And, but God chose to set his blessing upon them, chose to set his favor upon them and start to protect them and to provide for them. And so this humble nation, this meager small nation God had brought onto the world stage. He had given them this gift of setting them free from Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. He had given them the promised land, not because their military was strong. You guys remember stories of how they, sometimes he had them do stuff that seemed silly to us, like walk around cities and then shout, and God would make walls fall down. Like God was showing his power uh, to lift up the humble and to crush the powerful. God is not a respecter of persons or of nations or he looks around and is impressed with people because of their accomplishments. What she's saying that God is impressed with is being contrite and broken and humble and repentant. Those are the people that God deals with. Those are the people that God brings blessing to. She's seen this to be true in the life of Israel, of her very people. She's celebrating it. But what, where I want to spend the rest of our time is in verses 54 to 55 because at the end of her prayer, she moves beyond just remembering God's past actions and she remembers God's promises, the things that God has said he would do, the things he committed himself to do. And so it's very clear in verse 54 and 55 that Mary herself, she remembers God's promises. It's not just she has all the stories in her heart and mind of what God did in the past, but she knows in her mind and heart what God has said in the past, right? She talks about what he spoke to our fathers, verse 55. She has clearly grown up. We don't know a lot about Mary's background, but she has clearly grown up in her early years of life hearing about how God, verse 55, spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, She's remembering that promise that I told you about at the beginning of the sermon, that promise given 2100 B.C., 2,000 plus years before her, that God had given to Abraham that someday he was going to send a descendant of Abraham who would become a blessing to the nations. She's remembering that. 
that God has spoken, that God has pledged himself to do something. And that promise had gotten passed down in time. Generation, you see language of generational passing, right, throughout this prayer. Generation to generation to generation to generation to generation has passed that promise down in time, and it's come to her. She's heard it. She's heard the promise of God. And like many, she may have started to wonder if it was ever going to come to pass. They knew that God had made these promises. But they may have started to wonder, is he going to follow through with this? I know as an aside how important it is for us as a church to pass on the promises of God down in time. Like we must not, like this generation of us adults, like we must not let the gospel have been passed down in time, the promises of God to be passed down in time to us and then fail to pass it on to those coming behind us. Like we have a responsibility and a privilege as a church, as Christians, to keep passing down the promises of God in time to our kids, to our grandkids, to the children of our church, to our relatives, to the kids in our classes. We have a responsibility and a privilege to do that. So she, she has heard the promises. Mary has heard these promises of God. And she remembers them. She's probably rolled them over in her mind over and over again as a young girl and growing into a young woman. But what I would point out to you from verse 54 and 55, and this speaks to why she could trust the promises of God and why we can trust the promises of God, is this. What is far more important than Mary remembering the promises of God is God remembering the promises of God. That may seem super obvious to us, right? But she says in verse 54, she says in the sending of this Savior, this baby, she says, he has helped his servant Israel, hear this, this help he's providing, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. So she's saying this help God's providing, this baby he's sending is in remembrance of his mercy. Like God is remembering something. And what he's remembering is what he spoke to our fathers. God spoke to our fathers long ago. He told them he would do this. He told them he would send this rescuer to come. And what we see at the end of this prayer for Mary is that you can trust, this is what, be what I would want you to walk away with from this sermon, from this text, is that you can trust the promises of God not because you remember the promises, but because God remembers them. You can trust the promises of God, not because you remember them and you know them and you have them in your head and in your heart, but because God does. Because he remembers what he has said. He remembers what he has promised. This seems so painfully obvious, but I want us to think about this. For a promise to actually be kept, okay? For a promise to actually be kept, and I looked these up. These are actual words. It's not the promise-ee's memory that matters. It's the promiser's memory that matters, right? The promise-ee, the one who received the promise, hopefully they remember it. Hopefully they, they can hold on to it and, and latch on to it. But it does not matter if you remember something that was promised to you if the one who promised it doesn't remember who cares? We've all had times where that's happened, right? I mentioned how I sometimes promise to do something around the house and I fail to do it. 
We've all had times where somebody promised to meet us at such and such place at such and such time and they totally forget. Or they promise to make a phone call and that phone call never comes. They promise to visit for Christmas and they don't show up. Our kid promises to do a chore and they don't do it. Our parent promises to be at a certain thing and they don't come. But that is not true with God. This. He remembers his promises with intent to keep them. There's a lot of promises we make sometimes as promisers of things that, that, that we promise and then maybe soon or maybe down the road, long down the road, we change our mind. Or we forget sometimes that we promise. Or we choose to not keep the promise. Right? Because we've gotten frustrated, or we've gotten angry, or we've gotten disappointed. Just this week, I've talked with a few different people who are walking through the painful experiences of divorce, either recent or long ago from the past, where there were promises that were made. There was a covenant that was entered into by husband and wife, vows that were made, promises that were made. And that wife remembers what the husband promised. He remembers what he promised. But he has chosen to not follow through. He has chosen to break them. And that is painful as anything can be in human existence is when our promises are not kept. But God does not forget his promises. And he remembers them with the intent and the commitment to keep them. He does things in remembrance of the mercy that he's promised. Long ago, that promise she's remembering of God telling Abraham, I will send a descendant someday, that was an unconditional promise. Read it. Go back and read Genesis 12. God said, I will bless the nations through this descendant. I will make you into a nation. I will bless the nations. There was no conditions on it. God said he would do it, and he intended to do it, and he has done it. His mercy is given in remember. He says it's given, these actions are done in remembrance of his mercy, not in recognition of our godliness. Not in recognition of our worthiness to receive it. God does it because he promised to do it. And even when you forget the promises of God, or they fade into the background of your mind for a season, or even when you doubt the promises of God, and you wonder, is he really going to do that? Like, is he really going to follow through on these things that he has said? God remembers. He never forgets the things that he has promised. And his word is absolutely trustworthy. And Mary knew it, and we can know it, because when God speaks, he does what he says. And I would know that his promise is a promise of mercy promise that he made to Abraham long ago was a promise of mercy. Verse 54, mercy is desperately needed by us as human beings, isn't it? Mercy is when we deserve for something to be meted out for us. We deserve for punishment to be given to us, judgment to come to us, but it's withheld. We need that desperately as sinners. And God promised to give it. He promised to give it through this one offspring of Abraham. That mercy 
that needed to come to Mary, that needs to come to us, is a costly mercy. If we're to be shown mercy, and we can be, mercy can be shown to us, mercy can be shown to you as sinner, only because it was not shown to Christ. Christ grew up. He was conceived. He was born. He grew up into a man. And at the cross, he, he was born. He entered into our world for how his life would ultimately culminate at the cross. That God took our sins and he laid them upon Christ and showed no mercy to him. None. He gave him the judgment that should be coming on us. He laid it upon his son Jesus to the point of death. But he showed judgment to him so that he might show mercy to us. No mercy was shown to Christ so that it could be shown to us. And I would note to you, look at verse 50. If you know that you need this mercy, you know that you need the forgiveness of God for your sins, I want you to look at verse 50 and hear, hear God say this to you today. His mercy, God's mercy, is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. That includes this generation. If that mercy of God is going to be shown to you through Jesus, it comes to you as one who fears God. Let that be the orientation of your heart if it never has been before today. Not to fear Him in a terror way, but to fear Him in a humble, respectful awe-inspiring way to say, Father, please forgive me. Like, I am broken. I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against you. Please forgive me. Please show me mercy. And he will. I love if you keep reading Luke and the life of Jesus. If you get to Luke chapter 18, there's a story of a blind beggar. And I never forget how, he, how Luke records uh, him as he knew Jesus was coming by what he shouted out to him, he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people told him, shut up. Like, stop. Like, don't bother. Like, leave him alone. Like, who are you? Like, he's not going to care about you. And he just shouts again, like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes over to him and heals him. The first thing that he would have seen is the face of Jesus, this one who could have just walked by who could have rejected him because he's a sinner just like me and just like you, could have just passed him by. But Jesus showed attention to him, showed mercy to him, gave healing to him. And what he did for that blind beggar, he can do in infinitely greater measure for you. Forgiving you of your sins, of someday raising your body up from the dead just like his was. Guys, if we have more time, there are countless promises that God has made to us that I would love to just detail for you. Just, you can read the Bible yourself to find them. But God has given so many promises, so many merciful promises to us. He's promised, Jesus has promised to build his church. He's promised to be with us by his spirit. He's promised us comfort in our affliction. He's promised to protect us from Satan. He's promised a way of escape whenever we're tempted. He's promised us that he will return for us. He's promised us that someday he will establish a new earth. He has promised us that someday he will raise the dead. He has promised us that someday for his people he will wipe every tear. God is a God of his word. 
the end of that silly movie, Jingle All the Way, Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of fumbles his way, uh, not even because he meant to, but into keeping his promise to his son. As he figures out a way, uh, just lucks into it of getting this action figure for his son. But he still had forgotten, hadn't he? And he just lucked out. God doesn't just luck out into blessing us. It's been his intent from the beginning to send that Messiah. To send that one who would be born for us and die for us and be raised for us. And may we, just like Mary, be ones who believe that there will be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to us by the Lord. Amen. I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing one more song. Uh, but let's pray to that God who is the ultimate promise, not just promise maker, but promise keeper. Let's pray to him before we sing.